I'm going to read the first one. It is from Isaiah 53. And if you turn to page 741. Isaiah, of course, was writing hundreds of years before the Messiah came. Verses 1 to 6. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Second reading is from John chapter 19. It can be found on page 1087. It's John chapter 19, starting at verse 17. 1087. Carrying his own cross... He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus, sorry, where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Now we'll move just down to verse 28 at the bottom of the page. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, And so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Could you keep your Bibles open, please, at John 19 on page 1088. 
Let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, this is a solemn moment as we remind ourselves of what Jesus did for us on our behalf. And yet it's a glorious moment as we remember the eternal life that you have made possible for all who turn to you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've heard already, today is Palm Sunday, uh, when the church traditionally remembers the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem the week before he died. The crowds were there, laying palms on the road, greeting him with shouts of blessing. And it was some of them, no doubt, who a few days later were shouting for Jesus to be crucified. How fickle is the human heart. At St. Michael's, it's our custom on this Sunday to preach about the cross, since next Sunday with the children, we'll be rejoicing in the resurrection. Now, growing up, I used to be puzzled about the cross. I knew it was at the heart of the Christian faith, yet I also knew that many people before and since have suffered just as much physical torture at the hands of their killers. Why was this death so special? Was it the supreme example of the noble way to die? or the tragic end to an idealist's dream? Why was it so central to the New Testament writers? Listen to Paul. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For a man of his towering gifts and intellect, what was it about the cross? As we look at it in some detail, I trust that all of us here today, whether it's new to us or we've known it for years, will have a fresh sense of the power of the cross to transform lives, your life and mine. First, let's remind ourselves about what actually happened, some of which you saw last week with the arrest and trial of Jesus. Now, all four writers set out the main events from a slightly different angle. Now, as a a lawyer whose job used to be taking witness statements, uh, I knew very well that if all four witnesses in front of me told exactly the same story, their evidence really had no value. So we see with the gospel writers, each of them takes the story from a slightly different angle. First of all, there's Jesus in anguish in Gethsemane. We read about that in Luke 22. He says this, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, when Jesus talks about the cup, he's referring to the cup of God's wrath, Because on the cross, he knew he would bear the wrath of God for the sins of the whole world, yours and mine. And then we see Jesus betrayed by Judas and arrested. Yet, as MJ said last week, he was totally in control. He says this, this is your hour, he says to those arresting him, when darkness reigns. And then there's this very moving bit. He says, and we read about it in Matthew 26, Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions. Now, a legion had 6,000 soldiers, more than 12 legions of angels. Even at that point, Jesus knew he could back out, but he went through with it. Then he was disowned by Peter. He was mocked and beaten by the soldiers, who, when they crucified him, as we've just read in John 19, divided his clothes among themselves. There's the injustice of it all falsely accused of treason, crucified instead of a murderer, executed with two criminals, and yet he said of his killers, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. 
And despite his suffering, as he hung there, still thinking of others, still ready to save sinners, as he said to one of the two thieves on the cross who realized his sin, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Incidentally, that to me is one of the most precious verses when um, more than once as a vicar's wife, I've been called to the bedside of somebody who's dying. And it's wonderful to be able to say, if they know Jesus and have put their faith in Jesus, today you will be with him in paradise. Then we read about the darkness over the earth from noon till three and the temple curtain torn in two. And coming on to the meaning of that in a moment. The cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the almost final words of Jesus, absolutely key to the significance of the cross, which we've just read. Look at John 19, verse 30. That cry was this, it is finished. And then again, in Luke 23, we read, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, he was totally in control. And then there's the earthquake and the terrified centurion and the guards who saw all that had happened crying out, surely, Surely, he was the son of God. Now, what can we learn from these events? At first, far from representing dashed hopes to a young idealist, it's clear that in Jesus' mind, and again, Mary Jane said this last week, he came expressly to die. He told his disciples again and again that he would be killed, yet they didn't really take it in. His death and his resurrection were a necessity to achieve his mission would involve identifying with sinners and almost unbearable suffering. And we take that all so lightly, don't we? Every time we come to communion, you know, we're meant to be remembering that unbearable suffering. And we come almost lightly. I speak of myself. Um, And it was unbearable. He went to his death voluntarily, not like some puppet strung along by events. He was totally in control. Secondly, Note how amazingly, and we've seen it already here, the events of the cross fulfilled scripture. There are two particular passages in the Old Testament. Psalm 22, which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Isaiah 53, which was read earlier. And again and again, as you read those passages, you'll see how they are fulfilled here in the gospel accounts. These books written hundreds of years before the actual events. Thirdly, the darkness that came down for those three hours symbolized the weight of sin, the sin of the whole world that fell on Jesus. And at that moment, he was separated from God. He was God forsaken, not because he had sinned, because he was sinless, but because he was bearing our sin. Fourthly, The fact that the temple curtain between the holy place and the most holy place was torn from top to bottom. And that showed that the way had been made open by the death of Christ for anyone potentially to go straight into the presence of God. There was no more any need for the high priest to go there. And he could only go there anyway once a year. And fifthly, those words, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai, and it means paid. And in those days, that was written across a bill, tetelestai, paid. This was not a cry of failure from Jesus. It is finished, but a cry of victory. He had accomplished what he'd come to do. The price of our sin had been paid. There was nothing we could do 
nothing we needed to do. No, it's, one can have all sorts of analogies which you know, are small in comparison, but the picture might be of a judge in his court handing down the fixed penalty to some guilty offender. So there's a fixed penalty for it. He says to the guilty offender, this is the penalty. And then the judge gets down from his bench and writes out the check himself. That is what was going on on the cross. Now, a few years ago, Charles and I were in a Balti restaurant. Some of you will have heard me say this before, on Buckingham Palace Road. And we got talking to a South African couple who was sitting beside us. And Charles and he talked about rugby, as you do. We had a very happy conversation with them. And um, they, they then left, and we finished our meal. And then Charles asked for the bill. And the waiter said, but sir, it's been paid. That couple have paid your bill. Now, in a tiny way, we, we owed that bill. It was up to us to pay it. But that lovely couple had paid it on our behalf. In a very tiny way, that speaks of what Jesus did on the cross. We owe God. Our debt is actually death. The wages of sin are death. But Jesus paid it in our place. Now, the Bible describes what Jesus did in a number of ways, and I just want to mention three of them. Our sacrifice, our substitute, and our redeemer. Our sacrifice first. The Bible teaches that sin is serious. It cuts us off from God, and ultimately, unless something is done about it, it will cut us off from God eternally. In Romans 6.23, we read, we read that the wages or penalty of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, which leaves a person insensitive to God and cut off from him. And we've perhaps all known that. You know, you try and talk to somebody about your faith, and they just, they have no idea what you're talking about. It doesn't come across their radar. Many of you at work, I know, will experience that. You try and talk to people, they'll think you're weird. If you go in tomorrow and say you were at church yesterday, that's considered weird in our very secular society. But people like that, they may look alive, but they're spiritually dead through sin. And um, to satisfy the demands of justice, the holy God must punish sin and the sinner must die. Now, is there a way in which God can punish sin without producing an irreversible separation between himself and the whole of humanity? Can he show love without condoning sin? The answer lies in the sacrificial death of God's son a solution that was foreshadowed by Old Testament sacrifice. The cross satisfies both the justice and the love of God. Because as Paul said in Romans 6.23, we've quoted some of it already, the wages of sin is death, but he goes on, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the books of Leviticus in the Old Testament, if you've ever had a look at it, it's quite complicated, it's quite confusing. It lists all the sacrifices, but they foreshadow what we read about in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, which spells out the meaning of sacrifice and help us understand how the coming of Christ brought a whole new concept, dimension to the concept. Listen to these words from Hebrews. But Christ has appeared once for all, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, 
So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Did you see how many times in that short um, passage, the words once or once for all appear? This means that when we take Holy Communion, there is no re-sacrifice of Christ. He was sacrificed once, once for all time. And it's wonderfully comforting, for we can know that Christ died once for all the sins we have committed or will ever commit. It also means that the basis of forgiveness is the same, both for those who lived before the death of Christ and for those like us who lived after. And note too, and this is very often misunderstood, there is no second chance after death. Which is why we do not pray for the dead. We can thank God for those who've died, but we do not pray that they would be brought into salvation. It's too late then. And that's why we should have a real sense of urgency about sharing our faith with those who do not know God. Now, as Charles always says, we never know what happens between a person and God at the point of death. But let's not leave it till then. Let's not leave it till then. But for those who die in Christ, he says to them, just as he said to that thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. I just want to highlight two things here. The blood of Christ. Christ. Some people dislike the idea of being blood-bought or some of the old hymns which talk about fountains filled with blood. It's important to understand that when the Bible is talking about this, it's using spiritual language because in Scripture, bloodshed represents life poured out. So in Hebrews 9.22, we can read, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then there's this idea of the wrath of God. Now, we're going to be singing this in our very last hymn. Romans 3.25, when speaking of Christ as our sacrifice, says that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. Atonement simply means a making uh, at one of those who are estranged. Something happened, whereas God was making it possible for us to come back to him if we receive Christ. And the NIV study Bible note on this verse, talking about the wrath of God, says that without this, all people are justly destined for eternal punishment. In other words, this idea of the wrath of God is a spiritual law, just as the law of gravity is a physical law. Now, you may, not, you may say you don't like the law of gravity. I don't like the fact that if a toddler falls from a third floor window, it will probably die. I don't like that. But what do we do? Do we say, I don't like it, I don't agree with it? No. We put bars on the windows of our homes so toddlers don't fall out. It's exactly the same with these spiritual laws. We may not like them, but something has been done about it, and it's up to us to make sure that happens to us. And the idea of the wrath of God, it's not talking of a God who loses his temper in some uncontrolled way, but it's the relentless anger of a just God against all that is evil. Now, it's the anger that we feel when we think of the Holocaust or prisoners being beheaded by terrorists or a child being abused or an elderly person being tortured and robbed. That is the kind of anger we're talking about. And writer Wayne Grudem has said, here we see something of the amazing love of God 
and Jesus' son. Not only did Jesus know he would bear the incredible pain of the cross, but God the Father knew he would have to inflict this pain on his deeply loved son. And they did it because they loved you and me. Because God loved the world so much, he initiated all of this. That's our sacrifice. What about our substitute? For the unbeliever, Christ is his substitute. Since Christ does not commit sin and we cannot make atonement. Christ did something on the cross that no human being could ever do. So we can say that Christ died in our place on our behalf. And then our Redeemer. The Bible speaks of Christ as our Redeemer in many places. And the picture is that of slavery. Before becoming Christians, we are enslaved to sin. We may not realize it. That's the thing about it. We cannot help sinning. It's part of our nature. But as Christians, once we become Christians, we become a new person. It doesn't mean we never sin again. But what happens is sin is against our nature. It hurts when we sin because we know it hurts Jesus. And Christ is said to redeem us, not only from the penalty of the law, but the power of sin, the power of Satan, and future judgment. And Jesus himself said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life was the ransom he paid to buy us out of slavery. Now, I'm going to use an illustration again, which I've used before, but I think it's very helpful to explain all of this. Here is me. Here is someone who's not yet a Christian. And they're trying to get through to God. And they can't. Every time they pray, it's as if their prayers hit the ceiling and they come back again. They just, they cannot get through. And here is Jesus with this amazing, undisturbed relationship with with his father. All the time. And what we read in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 59 actually, it says this not getting through is not that God is deaf and he can't hear us or his arm too short to save us. But he says your sins have made a barrier between between you and God. So it's our sin that is the problem. And in Isaiah 53, 6 we read, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's a great definition of sin. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see what was happening? On the cross, Jesus put your sin and mine on Jesus. Now, I just said earlier um, that sin cuts us off from God. And that explains why in that moment Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing our sin, and so he couldn't get through to God. And the way was made open for you and me if we turned to Christ to have that amazing relationship. So how can we experience the power of the cross for ourselves? How can it become real in our life? Well, there's some things we need to know. That it's all about grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. As someone once said, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. That is how a cruel slave trader like John Newton could be converted. That's how the Apostle Paul, who described himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man, that they too could come to Christ because of grace. 
And people need to hear that. You know, I think so many people outside the church think we are there condemning and judging them. But actually what's happening is God has made it possible for us not to be condemned, not to be judged, and to have eternal life. That is grace. The cross satisfied both the holiness and the love of God. And anyone, no matter what their past or their present, who turns to him can receive that precious gift of eternal life today. That is grace. And when someone accepts Christ as their saviour, they're then accounted righteous in God's eyes. So God looks at you when you've asked Jesus into your life. He looks at you with Jesus-tinted spectacles. It's not that you are suddenly righteous. The rest of your life on earth is becoming, getting you ready for heaven. But Jesus has done it all. And you're then said to be justified. God looks at you just as if I had never sinned. That happens once for all time. But then we need to ask for forgiveness each time we sin. And we have to go on. Unlike being justified when our legal status before God is changed, forgiveness is something we have to keep on doing. And finding ourselves falling again and again into the same sin does not affect our eternal security. Once you are Christ's, you are his forever, for eternity. But it does affect our moment-by-moment relationship with God. But the power of the cross means we can face death and face God without fear or condemnation. It means freedom from guilt, and it means peace with God. It also means we can forgive others for the hurt they may have caused us. For as C.S. Lewis said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable done to you. Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And finally, you need to know how much God loves you. How inestimably precious you are to him. John Stott said this, My worth is what I am worth to God. And that is a marvellous great deal, for Christ died for me. Now, many, many years ago, when I was a student, again, some of you will have heard me say this before, um, I was in my second year at university, I was reading French and Spanish, and I had to read, over the Christmas vacation, a book by a Spanish nihilist philosopher called Unamuno. And this book was about a priest who loses his faith, but he doesn't tell anyone, he's priest of a, a, a little village which has incredible poverty, and he wants these dear people to go on believing there is a heaven to help them get through their dreadful lives. And it's only after he dies that his housekeeper comes across some writings and discovers to a horror that he'd lost his faith in life after death. And that hit me between the eyes. Also at the same time that Christmas, a friend of the family died, a middle-aged friend on holiday in Switzerland. And I was really hit by that because I thought death was what happened to elderly people, not somebody in midlife. And uh, I came back to university. I didn't tell anyone else. I didn't want them holding prayer meetings for me because I'd been very clever. Um, I knew the Christian language. I'd been brought up in a Christian church. And when I was with Christians, I was very good about using the Christian language. When I was not with Christians, I was totally ashamed. I didn't want anyone to know I had anything like that kind of faith. And... um, It took me into a period of three weeks of all I can describe as total darkness. 
For the first time in my life, I began to doubt the very existence of God. And it was awful. It was just black awfulness. I felt abandoned by God, God forsaken. And one night, and I, uh, I opened my Bible, and I opened it at Hebrews. You know, I did what we always say you shouldn't do. You know, I just opened it like that. And there was a verse at the beginning of Hebrews that Christ has suffered in every way as we have. And, I, and I'm sure I said it aloud to God. Well, Jesus didn't know what this feels like. And you may have guessed it. Even as I was saying that to God, the words from the cross came into my head. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And I realized in some very tiny way, God was showing me what Jesus went through on the cross for me. The cross is absolutely key to my faith. And you see, I had a nice plan for my life. Um, I was doing languages. I was going to come to London. Uh, I was going to um, join the foreign office, travel a bit, meet a nice wealthy man and settle down. And I had this awful feeling that if I committed my life to Christ... If I, you know, came off the fence, as it were, and committed my life to Christ, that my life would not turn out like that. But when I really understood what Jesus had gone through for me, I just said, Jesus, that's it. You've got me. I don't care what happens to me. I'm giving my life to you now because of what you have done for me. Now, I didn't meet a nice, wealthy man, but I have to say I've had the most amazing life full of adventure. If you told me I was going to be a vicar's wife, I would have died. I would have died. But I have to say, it has been amazing, wonderful, glorious. I couldn't have imagined how amazing it would be. And that is what God does with all of us. So how to make this all real to you? Maybe there's someone in church today who's never heard this before. You hate the way you're living now, but feel you'll never change. That is a lie. The power of the cross could transform your life. Turn to the risen Christ who died for you. Tell him how sorry you are for your sins that sent him to the cross. Ask him to come into your life. And you will know transformation, power, and peace. Maybe, like me, you've been a Christian for many years and you've forgotten this amazing truth. Maybe there's sin in your life that you've ignored. Take this opportunity to rededicate yourself to him. Let's pray.